Life is full of changes, aren't they? Isn't it? Some changes are welcome changes and others are dreaded or feared. I remember so clearly an interview that I heard several years ago um, where the interviewer was talking to two hundred-year-old identical twin sisters. And the interviewer was asking, what was their secret to longevity of life? What was it? What did they eat? What did they drink? How much did they exercise? What did they not eat? What did they not drink? You know, he was just determined to find out what gave these hundred-year-old twin sisters vitality of life at this age. And the answer they gave is something I'll always remember. They said, the secret to longevity of life is not what they ate or what they drank or how much they exercised. It is about the ability to handle change. Because they said that by the time you're 100 years old, nearly all of your family and friends have passed away, and the world is a completely different place than the world you grew up in. You know, I'm only 56, and I can tell you the world is a completely different place than the world I grew up in. The internet wasn't invented in the world I grew up in. I played outdoors. I didn't have computer games. The world that my kids are growing up in is totally different. But I can also agree that if I'm going to survive for another 40 years, maybe, I've got to adapt. I've got to change. I have to be an active, dynamic part of this world. And that was such a piece of wisdom that I've never forgotten how important it is that we embrace change. Change is hard, though. Our sweet friend Lisa lost her mom a week ago, yesterday. And that kind of change is heartbreaking, isn't it? She said goodbye to her 90-year-old mom, and she watched by her bedside as her mom slipped away from this world. She knows her mom is with Jesus, but the pain that that change leaves in her heart is so profound. She is just going to miss her mom on a daily basis until she sees her again. Losing a parent is something that most of us anticipate will happen in our lifetime, but it's something we dread, isn't it? We dread the day. I dreaded the day I would lose one of my parents. It is something we look forward to with sorrow, and we hope it doesn't happen. And um, it's a kind of change that is just a really, really hard change. But on the flip side of that, a new baby brings a change into a family that brings great joy. My friend Jenna Gilchrist, who works on the women's ministry team with me, she is expecting a little boy in about a month, maybe six weeks. And this is an especially joyful change for their family because they have two little girls, and her husband Jess grew up as a boy among four sisters. And every time his mom brought a new baby home from the hospital, he just prayed and prayed and prayed it would be a brother, and it wasn't. And then he gets married, and he has two little girls. And so he's been praying and praying and praying that he would have a son. And so this is a, is a baby that's going to bring great joy to the Gilchrist family. So change can be something that we look forward to with excitement or can be something we dread, something we fear. Change unsettles the norm of our lives. Whether for good or bad, we're in a pattern of life. And when change comes, and it comes, it comes all the time, we're always having to adjust but one of the greatest blessings of our human nature is the fact that we have the ability to adapt to change. That's a blessing to us because we live in an ever-changing world. But it's also an amazing blessing that we actually are able to change within ourselves. 
we're actually able to become different people than we started off, that we're able to mature and grow, and especially as we're in a relationship with God, we're able to grow and mature spiritually, and we can literally become a different person. And one of the most praiseworthy characteristics of God's nature is his inability to change. He is unable to change in his essence, in his character, and in his plans and purposes. David sang about this in 2 Samuel. He wrote a song and he said, The Lord lives, blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. God is the rock. He is immutable. He is self-sufficient. He's independent. He is a rock. And that is a blessing to us. When I think about rocks, you might have heard me say this before, a couple of years ago when we studied this passage in the life of David. When I think about rocks, my mind is immediately drawn to a big rock that sits in the Gallatin River near my cabin in Montana. It's called House Rock. And this rock all my life has never moved. It's always been there. And the crazy thing is, When my dad was a little boy, that rock was there, and he talked about house rock. When my grandfather was a little boy, that rock was here, and he talked about house rock. So for generations, we've talked about house rock, smack dab in the middle of the Gallatin River. And when I look at this rock, I'm reminded of the steadfast nature of God. You know, everything in life changes, but year after year after year, that rock is right there in the same place. Now, things around it change. Sometimes when the high water comes, you can barely see the rock. It's covered with this torrential stream of water that's muddy, and it comes down, and it doesn't even look like it's as big as it is, but it is. And then when the waters recede, that rock is still there. It's unmoved. It looks just the same. And the sight of house rock is a comfort to me and to those of us who like the familiarity of what we know to be consistent and true in life. I I like seeing that rock. I like knowing that my my dad saw that rock and my grandpa saw that rock and my boys saw that rock. And every year I go back, I'm comforted by the fact that something in life hasn't changed. But it can be a danger when we disregard the unmovable nature of house rock. When those high waters come, kayakers are famous for trying to challenge themselves to navigate this rock during the high water season. And every year, someone loses his or her life trying to do so. So thinking about the immutability of God in our lesson this week, it really informs us that God is the unchangeable rock in the midst of an ever-changing world. And aren't you grateful? That's our comfort and our hope. Because we're living in a world, we're a week away from an election in the United States. We're working, we're going to live in a world that's going to change one way or another in just a very short period of time. And it's constantly changing. And so to be reminded that God is our rock, that he is unchangeable in our ever-changing world is a great hope to us. But we should praise God also for not communicating this particular attribute to us, to mankind, because it is actually our changeable nature that makes it possible for us to repent of sin and receive Christ as our Savior. And if God had made us like him, unchangeable, we would never be able to be here today caring and thinking and learning about God because we would have been unable to even change from our self-sufficiency and independence and hard-heartedness to even seek and find the God of creation. So today I'm going to talk about, only talk about God's 
characteristic of being immutable. This is a very deep, mind-perplexing topic. It doesn't seem like it, but it will be when I'm done with you. You'll say, absolutely, this is something I'm glad I got to wrap my mind around. You're going to get to talk about God's independence and self-existence um, in, in your discussion groups this morning, but I want to wrap our minds around this idea that God is immutable. So I'm going to, going to stretch your thinking, because I'm going to tell you in the first part that God is unchanging. But in the second part, I'm going to tell you that God is changing. So you'll have to think about that today. But what I want you to know is that God is unchanging in his nature, but he is dynamic in his relationship with us. He is unchanging in his nature, but he is dynamic in his relationship with us. So let's start by talking about how God is unchanging. Like I said, we live in a world of constant motion, constant change. Everything changes around us. People come and go in our lives. Leaders change. Heads of churches and organizations and nations are changing. We know that our bodies are changing. Bummer. As somebody who's just exiting menopause, I'm looking at a body I don't recognize anymore. <laughs> yeah, bodies change. We know that. Lots of things are changing in our lives. Seasons change. Do you know also the planet is changing? Did you know, for example, that Australia is moving? Australia, the continent, is moving. All the continents are actually moving. And Australia, they say, drifts 70 millimeters northeast every year. Now, Australia, it's believed, was once connected to Asia and Antarctica. So over a course of years, it broke away first from Asia and then from Antarctica, and it's continued to move. It's not something that humans can see with their eyes, how the continent is drifting. But now that we have GPS systems and satellites, we're able to see how much the continent is actually moving. In fact, in 1994, the last time that they updated their GPS system, they discovered that um, since 1994, Australia has actually moved five feet. Five feet since 1994. That's a lot. And what's happening in Australia is because the continent is moving, it's messing up their um, technology that relies on GPS. So farmers there have driverless tractors, which it's very important that the driverless tractors stay on the actual field and not go five feet into the neighbor's field. And they're also using driverless cars, and they're using drones. So if, you're, if your GPS is off because the continent is moving, then your neighbor's going to get your package when it's dropped by a drone in their yard instead of yours. So everything on, on the earth is changing, but God isn't changing. God doesn't change. He is immutable. That means he is unchanging in his being. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So he is our anchor in the storms of life, and he is the firm foundation in which we can build our lives upon. I want us to look at three aspects of God's unchanging nature. So first of all, I want us to understand that, that God is unchanging in his being, in who he is. God, his eternal essence doesn't change. He is the immor eternal, immortal king. We, as we've talked about in weeks past, he existed before the earth was created, and he will exist long after the earth perishes or is renewed. We know in Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you, were, you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is everlasting. He is never changing in his essence. Psalm 102 says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. 
They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. Now, created things like us and like our planet, they have a beginning and an end, right? But God has always existed. He has no beginning and he will have no end. He always was and he always will be. He will never cease being God, ever. And for us, that's hard for us to understand as created beings because we have a day that we celebrate as our birthday, the day we were born, and we have a day that we look forward to with dread and sorrow, the day that our life on this earth will end. And life is bookended by those two events, and as you grow older, you realize how short those years are between those events. But God, he is permanent in his existence, and he is perfect in his being. God does not grow wiser with time, and he never gains in strength or power. He never grows and matures and develops or learns he, in anything. He is perfect. He is absolutely perfect in his being, which means he cannot change for the worse either. The second thing is that God is unchanging in his character. So God's attributes do not change. As we've talked a lot about God's interaction with Moses, you remember that when God revealed himself to Moses, he said, I am who I am. His name betrays his character, I am. And he is communicating that he is self-existent, he is eternal, and he is changeless. And you remember that later when God took Moses, we're going to talk a lot about this passage, you're going to know it by heart by the time the year is over, when God took Moses up into the cave and he tucked him in and he walked past and he revealed himself to Moses with words. Remember what he said, he, he described to Moses his divine attributes. He said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And then Jesus came 2,000 years ago, and he revealed to us the unchanging character of God. When we look at Jesus, we see God veiled in human flesh. And we understand by looking at Jesus' life, these characteristics that God told Moses fleshed out into the person of Jesus Christ. And God's moral character as displayed through Jesus is the same today. This is who God is. Malachi 6.8 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. But God's truth also doesn't change. So his attributes don't change, but also his truth doesn't change. Now, with the political election around the corner, I'm reminded again about just how squishy truth is for human beings. <laughs> is that a nice way of putting it? <laughs> squishy. It's not hard, fast, and solid. It's changeable. Politicians like to speak out of both sides of their mouth, don't they? They change their, their thoughts and their views to appease political parties, or they say things to either aggrandize themselves or to hurt their opponents. And it doesn't matter on what level the election is taking place. We see how mankind is not, how truth for mankind is a little t-truth. But truth for God is a big T truth. It's the truth. It is the solid rock foundation of truth. And thankfully, the words of God are true, and they will stand forever. God will always uphold the truth of his word. He says in Isaiah 40, The grass withers and the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. 
The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Capital T Truth. And then Psalm 118, 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heaven. And it's because God's word is true that he is trustworthy. He's trustworthy for us, for our lives. We can depend on him. We can, we can build a foundation. We can put our lives upon the foundation of who he is. What he promises in scripture has come to pass, and it will come to pass. We can depend on that. What he warns about in scripture we can prepare for with confidence. We don't need to be caught by surprise. He has warned us about things. And what he declares as true is true. And we can agree and we can receive it as truth. And nothing is ever going to invalidate God's truth. There's nothing that ever has invalidated God's truth. If we look through the full breadth of Scripture, what he said in the Old Testament came to be in Christ and continues to be as we look forward to Christ's return, nothing has invalidated God's truth so far, and it won't. And so this means that when we study our Bibles, we're not studying an ancient historical text about a people who lived long, long ago. We're studying the living words of God that speak truth into our life. And though our world is changing and our culture changes, there's something about the heart and the, the essence of humanity that never changes. The problem of sin and the desperate need for God and, and the world is moving according to God's very clearly laid out plan and purposes to where Christ will return and restore and judge the world and restore all things. And so we can know that this is God's word for us today. It's living and active word. It's relevant and we can take to heart what he says and let him speak into our lives today. Now, God is unchanging also in his plans and his purposes. So God doesn't lie, and he doesn't change his mind about his eternal plans and purposes. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? God never repents of his plans and purposes. In fact, when he makes his plans, he makes them with full knowledge of the beginning from the end or the end from the beginning. He knows all things. So he's never surprised. He never changes course in what he plans and what he purposes. There's no unexpected turn of events where he goes, oh, I didn't expect that. He knows all things. He's prepared for all things. He is both omniscient, all-knowing, which is what our lesson next week is about, and he's omnipotent, which is all-powerful. So he never needs to reverse course. Psalm 33:11 says, "The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations." So the first point that I would love for you to remember about this aspect of God's unchanging being is that God is unchanging in his being, his characters and his purposes. There's three ways that he's unchanging in his being, in his essence, in his character, in his attributes and his truth, and in his plans and purposes. You know, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about how much comfort I receive from this aspect of God's character. Do you receive comfort from this aspect? You know, in a changing world, in a changing life, when everything, you know, is changing all around us, does it comfort you to know that when you read God's word and when you pray that the God of yesterday is the same today and the same tomorrow? I think about sometimes how much I love to read devotionals from the great saints who have gone before me. I love to read Oswald Chambers. I love to read C.S. Lewis. I love to read Amy Carmichael or Jonathan Edwards or Augustine. I love to read and just 
the God that they write about, the God that they speak about, the God that they, they write devotionals because out of their own experience of their relationship with him, that's the same God I recognize in my own life. And that encourages me. There's this thread of continuity between those who have gone before us in faith and where I am today and, and where my children and grandchildren will be one day. That's such an encouragement. God's not changing. He's not a moving target that I have to always figure out what's he doing and where's he going and what's he thinking. God's word tells us this is who he is and this is his truth and this is life as he's written and it will be one day different, but just as he's prescribed. That's a great comfort for our lives and for our world. Is he the rock of your storms? Is he the foundation upon which you're building your family? Is he the foundation upon which you're building your marriage? Is he the one that you're, you're, you're trusting in with your children and your grandchildren? I think so often about um, what we teach our children and our grandchildren about who God is by the way we respond to life and how they watch us. We can tell them all these great things about God, but when we're in a crisis or when our faith is being tested, what they really learn about God is what they see in us and the way that we respond You know, do we pray? Do we trust? Do we hold steadfast, anchoring ourselves to him as the rock, knowing that we're not the rock? But do we hold steadfast and and trust and look to him and and receive encouragement and a firm sense of solidity in him? Do they see that? Because if we don't, if we freak out and we fear and we, we fall apart, what are we saying about who we know God to be? These are things that we can bring into our everyday life as we trust in him and we agree that he is who he's always been and he is our rock. He's immovable, he's unchangeable in his nature. He is steadfast and kind and slow to anger and loving and forgiving, but he will not leave the guilty go unpunished. That's important. But he's also the God who is eternal in his love and grace towards us. Well... Now I'm going to tell you a little bit of something that sounds just the opposite. God is changing. How can I just get done telling you, making a case from Scripture that God is unchanging, and now I'm going to tell you that God is changing? Doesn't the Bible say that God never changes? Well, what do we do with verses in Scripture that speak of God changing his mind? What do we do with verses in Scripture that speak of God repenting and changing course? I want us to look at some examples, and then I want to talk them through with you. For example, in the days of Noah, when God saw how corrupt mankind was on the earth in Genesis 6, this is what he said. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Sounds to me like God had a change of heart. He regretted making man who had become so evil. Didn't he know that man would do these things? How about in the days of Israel when King Saul was disobedient and, had, and became hard-hearted? And the prophet Samuel sent, um, was sent to Saul, or God spoke to his prophet Samuel about Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 11. He said, I regret that I have made King Saul. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. 
Doesn't it seem like God has had a change of heart? And then the Lord spoke about his, to, about, to his prophet Joel about his people Israel. And in Joel 2, verses 13 and 14, Joel tells the people, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. So here's what I want you to understand, and I'm going to help you understand this as we go forward, but you're going to want to write this down. Though God is unchanging in his being, so he's unchanging in his essence and his character and his truth and his plans and his purposes. Though he's unchanging in all of those things, he does change his attitudes and actions depending upon the repentance, resistance, or prayers, and or prayers of his people. So he's unchanging in who he is, but he does change his attitudes and actions based on how we respond to him. God may change how he responds to people in a relationship with him. He may change how he responds in his attitudes towards people and in his actions. Because God is relational. God has chosen to enter into a relationship with mankind. And so he can choose to respond to us in a dynamic way, in a personal way, without ever changing his immutable nature or his eternal purposes. To understand this, I want to take us into another Moses story. I want to take us to Exodus 32. I want to show you how God had a change of heart in this story. So we're going to look at um, Moses 32. Here's the context. The context is Israel... God's people, he has rescued them from slavery in Egypt, and they have come to the wilderness. They're hanging out in the wilderness, trying on their way to the promised land, which God is taking them to, and it's a journey that should have taken 40 days, but they've been disobedient, so now it's going to take 40 years, and they're hanging out in the wilderness, and Moses has gone up to the top of Mount Sinai to meet with God. The clouds have covered People can't see. They're looking up. They're seeing Mount Sinai full of clouds. Moses has been gone for a really long time. And they're thinking he's never coming back. And they're getting grumbly, and they're starting to wish they were back in Egypt, where everybody there had abundance of food. Even though they were slaves, they had food, and they had comfort, and they had these gods to worship, the Egyptian gods that look like cows. So here's what happens. Oh, yeah, by the way, Moses left his brother Aaron in charge. Probably a mistake. So, in Exodus 32, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to, him, to them, Take off the rings of gold that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. If you study this passage in any, deep, in any depth, you know that this was a modern-day orgy. It was not a good, clean 
party. It was a pretty, it was a pretty sad thing that happened. Now, meanwhile, Moses is with God up on the mountain. And so God says to Moses, he sees what's going on down below. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. Is God mad? He is red hot mad. He is so mad because he was in a covenant relationship with his people. They had just a few chapters ago, they had agreed. He ha they had said, we want to be your people and we want you to be our God and we will have no other gods before you. They were in a covenant relationship with him. And now they have made a decision to forsake him, to resist him, to say, we don't want you as our God. We are going to worship this God of Egypt that we've made out of gold. And so God has become angry. He has had a change of attitude. This is a change. He wasn't angry before they did this. He wasn't angry a few chapters ago when we were in, in his engagement with his people. He wasn't angry just a short time ago when he was giving Moses the Ten Commandments. But he has now experienced real time what's happening on the ground, and he is he is angry. He's had a change of attitude. This has happened real time. But then Moses amazingly, courageously engages with the Lord. He responds to him. Moses is talking to the Lord. He's using words. This is to us prayer. Prayer is any time we just speak to the Lord. Moses is face-to-face -face with God. He's present with God. But when we pray, we're doing the same thing. We're talking to God. So he speaks to him, and he asks God to change his attitude. Moses implored the Lord his God and said, Oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of this land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them on, in the mountains and, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. And then Moses goes on to remind God about his purposes and his promises. He says, remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. So Moses says, God, turn from your anger. Have a change of attitude about this. Remember, who you're, remember your good promises. And the Lord then responds to the prayers of his faithful servant Moses. And he changes his mind about the kind of judgment that he's just about to bring upon his disobedient people. But notice that he changes his mind while the people are still in revelry. They're still in debauchery and, and idol worship. God doesn't change his mind because the people have changed their behavior. He changes his mind because his faithful servant Moses has prayed and asked him to have a change of heart because he believes in the good character and the, and the, 
nature of who God is and believes in his plans and purposes and his promises. Verse 14, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So you see, God's character is still the same. He's still the God of Exodus 34, 6, and 7, kind and gracious and slow to anger and full of mercy and forgiveness. But because of Moses' prayer, he's changed his attitude and his actions. He has changed his response. He's changed. He's not going to wipe out the whole nation on that day. He's instead going to offer grace for those who will stand and worship the one true God of Israel. There will be grace and forgiveness. That becomes the tribe of Levi. And for those who, who, who resist and remain steadfast in, in worshiping the golden calf, they'll be destroyed that day. But he offers to change his heart attitude. So in this example, we can see that God is unchanging in his character, and he's unchanging in his promises, and he's unchanging in his eternal plans and purposes. But we see how he is engaged real time in, with his people as he responds to us on the basis of our response to him. He responds to us when we repent of sin and we turn to him in trust and forgiveness. He extends grace. He responds to us when we resist him. We have consequences. And he also responds to the prayers of his people. Now, of course, God is still, know- he's all-knowing. He knew everything that was going to happen. He had, we'll, we'll study this more next week, how he knows. I think about how when Peter and Jesus were together in that courtyard, and Peter says, God, I'm gonna, Jesus, I'm going to stand with you to the very end. I'll never deny you. And Jesus says, actually, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. He knew what decisions Peter was going to make. He knows what decisions that we're going to make. But there's something very different about how he engages relationally with us real time in the moment when we make those decisions. And he engaged, as we saw in this situation, with anger real time in the moment when the Israelites built the golden calf. So nothing takes him but surprise, by surprise, but God interacts with us experientially in the moment of our decisions, and his attitudes and actions can change based on our response to him. And I just want to say, if this were not so, why would we pray? Why would we ever pray? If we didn't trust that God experiences us real time in the moment and there's a possibility that he can change his attitudes and actions based on our response to him in faith, if we didn't trust in that, why would we ever pray? If he had it all predetermined, what would be the point? But when God listens and responds to our prayers, he does often change his heart, his mind and his attitude based on our request, based on our faith. And, he, and I want to share with you a couple of examples of this from Scripture so you don't take my word for it. From the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 20. It's a great example. It's an example when um, Hezekiah, King Hezekiah was very, very sick. And the Lord sent the prophet Isaiah to him and told him that he was going to die. Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, Isaiah is saying to Hezekiah, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came back to him. Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. And God did. 
he healed him and added 15 years to Hezekiah's life. God had a change of attitude and action because of the prayers of Hezekiah, his faithful servant. Another example from from our life here at River West is Pastor Kayumba. Pastor Kayumba is a ministry partner of ours in Rwanda. And he's very special to us because he is, he is building and leading a church in the community of Bujasera where many of us at River West have children that we sponsor. And Pastor Kayumba this summer became deathly ill with hepatitis B. He was so sick. He actually was in bed. He was suffering from acute liver failure. And we began praying for him. And in fact, we began praying that his physical healing would become an outward demonstration of the spiritual healing that was happening in the community that he was ministering to as people in this community were giving their life to Christ. Wouldn't that be amazing? We said, God, you could glorify yourself if they could see Pastor Kayumba being healed in the body and they could understand how this physical healing is what's happening to them spiritually as they're coming to know Jesus. Well, Christopher, two weeks ago, went to um, Rwanda, and here's a picture of him with Pastor Kayumba in the tan coat. He's healed, and he's healing. He was so sick that he was bleeding out of his eyeballs, and they thought he would die. And now he is back to preaching and eating and exercising and gaining continually in health and strength. Praise God. God heard our plans, and he had a change of heart and attitude about, about Pastor Kayumba. James 4.2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. And Matthew 7.7, 7, Jesus says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. Prayer is the most tangible expression of faith that we can make. Because when we pray, we are taking time out of our busy lives and we're saying, this time is important and I believe that, God, you see me, you hear me, you listen to me, and I believe that, that I can impact our relationship through prayer. That when I pray, you are, it's pleasing to you because I'm expressing trust and faith in you and I believe that because I pray... Because I ask, you do great and mighty things to glorify yourself. And God responds to the prayers of his people. He does. So the point I want you to know is that though God knows everything and he is unchanging in his nature, he is dynamic in his relationship with us. This is the God we studied when we studied the Trinity. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is in community within himself, and he is in community with us, and we're in community with each other. And so God is dynamic as he relates to us as individuals, and he relates to us in community. And do you realize that it's because you are mutable and I am mutable that we can even enjoy a relationship with an immutable God? This is one of the characteristics we can be so thankful that God did not communicate to us. We talked about communicable and incommunicable attributes. Praise God, he did not make us like him in this way, that we are changeable. And because we are, we're able to recognize sin and we're able to repent and turn from sin and turn to Christ. And we're able to, to, to respond in humility to him. And then by God's grace, he makes it possible for us to change from the inside out. He makes it so that we can become like Christ through the dynamic interaction of the Holy Spirit. At River West, we've been studying a lot about Genesis. 
And it's just so interesting because after sin happened in the garden, God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. He wouldn't let them remain lest they eat from the tree of life. And it's believed that if Adam and Eve had eaten from the tree of life, that they would have been eternally stuck in a relationship separated by God because of sin. There would have been no ability to change. There would have been no ability to, to, to receive the death that was needed for the, for the um, atonement for sin that Christ provided for us because we would have been eternally stuck in a separated relationship with God. But by God's grace and mercy, he kicked them out of the garden so they couldn't eat of that tree and gave them the ability and us the ability to repent from sin, to change and to receive the sacrificial death of Christ for our sins so we could be in relationship with him. Everything depends on change. We're hard-hearted and stubborn people. And if we don't recognize sin for what it is and we don't turn from it and receive what Christ did on our behalf, there's no coming together in a relationship with an immutable God. Wasn't that perfect, what God designed for us way back then? So change begins when we repent of sin and we trust in the grace of Jesus Christ to forgive us and welcome us into a relationship with God. Change continues as the Holy Spirit comes to live within us and works to sanctify us and change us and change our hearts and our attitudes and make us more like Christ. And then change becomes our hope as we learn to engage with a dynamic relational God through prayer and through his word and through faith. So I want to ask you, how are you allowing the Holy Spirit to change you? How are you welcoming change into your life? How are you different than you used to be? Sometimes we get stuck and we feel like I'm not growing or I'm backsliding or struggling with my spiritual walk. I want to encourage you this week to just think back. Think back two months. Think back two years. Remember who you were, but not in, don't just remember what you did. Remember how you thought, how, how, what your heart condition was, and see if you can see a pattern of growth and change that has been working in your heart since you've been engaging in study, engaging with the Lord in prayer. In what ways are you still yearning to grow? How are you moving forward? How does your prayer life reflect your belief in God's dynamic involvement in your life? Do you pray? Do you know that most Christians don't pray? Most Christians don't pray. Prayer is this place where God is interacting dynamically in your life and it can move his heart to change his attitude and actions. We leave that on the table far too often. Prayer is so vital. You know, we have a, a, a prayer group here. God put it on my heart a year ago to start a group called Wednesday Noon Prayer. And the vision he gave me, and it hasn't come to be yet, exactly, the vision he gave me is that the doors would open on Wednesday at noon and people from all over our city would come in to pray for one hour. Well, we started and we have about 15 to 20, 12 to 20 women who come faithfully to pray and others are joining us, pastors are joining us, more and more are joining us. But this is where we're seeing God work in amazing ways. Like God is answering prayer and what he's been teaching me is that that is the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry isn't teaching or counseling or pastoring or leading. It's prayer. Like, that's where the hard, shoveling, back-breaking work of the ministry happens. It's in getting before him and laying it all out and praying. And we pray for people in our congregation. 
pray for ministries. We pray for our nation. Pray for each other. Come. It's open to anybody. Just at noon, it's right here in the sanctuary. Come anytime. And if you want us to help teach you how to pray, come and just be encouraged to learn how to pray. We pray in a very orderly way, and it's just a real awesome time. But here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that God never changes in his essence, in his nature, in his being. He never becomes more or less God. He still will always be the God of Exodus 34, 6, and 7. He never learns new things. He never modifies truth. He knows all things from beginning to end. He knows the outcome of our choices before we even make them. His plans and purposes are eternal. They will never change. But he has chosen to enter into a dynamic relationship with his people, and he responds dynamically to individuals and to groups. And so he can change his attitude and his actions based upon our repentance, our resistance, and our prayers. Isn't that awesome? Let me pray. Father, we just praise you and thank you that you care so intimately for us. You love us so fully. You know us so well. You know everything we're going to do and say before we do it. You experience our decisions to the core of your being. It matters to you. And yet you, Lord, are interactive. You've, you've invited us into a relationship where we can speak to you through prayer and we can engage with your heart that you do respond Forgive us for all the times we have not because we ask not. And our faith is so small when you're inviting us into an incredibly eternal, enormous relationship with you, which is dynamic and personal. So, Lord, I just pray you teach us more about yourself. We want to thank you and praise you for what you're teaching us every week when we open our Bibles and we look at our lessons. Enlarge our faith and enlarge our prayer life, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.